Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Noam Chomsky, one of the most influential intellectuals in the world. He's laureate professor of linguistics at the University of Arizona, a professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and the author of more than 150 books. He is also obviously Noam Chomsky. It was an amazing conversation. I felt like I was talking to a communist father Christmas, a proper elder, a wise evangelical secularist who continues to believe very powerfully in change. It's a fantastic conversation. I feel really grateful that we've managed to do it. I've got a bit of a cold today, so my voice sounds a bit mental. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Professor Chomsky, thank you for joining us. Glad to be with you. If my eyes are pointed in the corner, that's because I'm reading the transcription. Can't hear anything. (laughs) Ah, okay. There's a transcription. I'll speak slowly. It it doesn't help because... I have to look at the transcription. <laughs> Regardless. Please don't work. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for joining us, Professor. Um, the Scottish comedian Billy Connolly said that the Queen must think that the world smells of paint because everywhere she goes, there's someone 10 yards ahead of her sort of polishing and uh, removing any blemishes from the world as she encounters it. And I wonder if to you, Professor, the world is full of people who, as I am about to, try to impress you with their intellect and vocabulary as you have been canonised while still alive and uh, peerless in your field and in your social and cultural position. And so I sort of, it feels like an interview that um, I have, there's extraordinary pressure on me to produce questions of value. And so I would just like to begin by saying, with your experience, your expertise, your training, your history of activism, approaching the point in your life that you are, at the point of your life that you are, do you feel that this is a, unique time? Do you feel optimistic? Do you feel that there are, for younger people, for people that are interested in change, many avenues open to explore, a discourse worth engaging in, ideas worth exploring? Or do you feel that there has been, over the course of the last 50 to 70 years, a net of power gently closing? And the between the, the the vacillation between Trump to Biden, Brexit post Brexit, do these apparently extreme things demonstrate the limit of democratic power rather than the reality of the real ability of our institutions to deliver change? I suppose what I'm asking: Where do we look for hope now, Professor? Well, the uh, decline of. Uh an arena for rational discourse, including the undermining of functioning democracy, is a very serious matter uh, that harms the countries, of course, but it also eliminates 
or at least sharply reduces the, our capacity to deal with problems that humanity has never faced in its history. We should recognize more than anything else that we are now this generation, your generation, the next generation, are facing a question that has never arisen in human history. They have to decide, you have to decide whether the human species will survive and much of the rest of life with it. We are facing overwhelming crises. There's a good reason why the famous doomsday clock switch, switched from minutes to seconds, second, hundred seconds to midnight, which means termination. They've never done that in 75 years, but they've done it now. The reason is one, we are destroying the environment that sustains life at a rapid pace. There's not much time to waste. And the threat of nuclear war is escalating at a time when we should be reducing and eliminating this scourge of nuclear weapons. Now, we cannot deal with those questions unless there is an arena of rational discourse, considering arguments, evidence, thinking seriously about what to do. Now, fortunately, the younger generation is doing it. There are, there's extensive mobilization and activism to try to get those in power to pay attention to what they're doing. They're destroying the world. Uh, when Greta Thunberg gets up at Davos and tells the elite gathered there, you have betrayed us. She is entirely correct. And every effort must be made to overcome that. Fortunately, plenty of young people around the world are doing it. Some are joining them, not enough. Uh, but these problems, these three problems, have to be dealt with decisively. One is creating an arena of discourse in which the issues can be discussed seriously and honestly. The second is to use those opportunities to end the growing threat of nuclear war, to cut it off, and to reverse the policies that are destroying the environment. Each of those areas, broad and vast as they are, are tethered in their way to centralized power. At the beginning of your career as an activist rather than as an academic, anarchism and freedom of speech were two issues about which you were vocal and uh, explicit. Do you still feel that decentralization and anarchism are important subjects to be explored within this arena that you say that we are currently lacking? And do you feel that there is a future in some of these ideas that sometimes feel like they belong to a previous century 
specifically anarchism? I think they belong to a future century. These are long-term goals that should guide us in what we do every day, but are, can only be approximately realized. And it, we can make advances towards them, but take uh, f without freedom of speech, we have no hope of dealing with any of the problems that concern us. Uh, we can see this very clearly today, very dramatically. So take the United States today. It is living under a kind of totalitarian culture which has never existed in my lifetime and is much worse in many ways than the Soviet Union before Gorbachev. Go back to the 1970s, uh, people in Soviet Russia could access BBC, Voice of America, uh, German television, if they wanted to find out the news. If today in the United States, you want to find out what Prime Minister Lavrov of Russia is saying, can't do it, it's barred. Americans are not permitted to hear what Russians are saying. Can't get Russian television, can't access Russian sources. That means also that fine American journalists like Chris Hedges, one of the best, is cut out, barred from Americans because he happens to have a program running on RT, Russian television. You want to find out what the adversary is saying, which is of utmost importance. You can maybe tune into Indian state television and find it out, or you can read it on Al Jazeera. But uh, the United States has imposed constraints on freedom of access to information, which are astonishing, and which in fact go beyond what was the case in post-Stalin Soviet Russia. That's a remarkable fact. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it goes well beyond uh, anyone who dares to break the party line on the dominant issue of today, Ukraine, is simply demonized, vilified, can't be sent to the gulag, free country still, but you can barely talk. And that has very dangerous implications for the current situation and beyond. Uh, all of this is very serious. As far as anarchism is concerned, that should be a guiding principle. We should constantly be searching for illegitimate authority, challenging its illegitimacy, trying to overcome it. It's basically the core principle of traditional living anarchism. So that should be a guideline in anything we do. However, we should recognize that to deal with the current existential problems like climate destruction and nuclear war, we are going to have to work within the framework of existing institutions. That's obvious just from consideration of timescales. We can modify them, we can try to improve them, 
but they cannot be overthrown in any reasonable time scale. That's true, even though we must recognize that unconstrained cap free market capitalism is a recipe for suicide. Actually, business has understood this for hundreds of years. That's why they never permit the business world, which is overwhelmingly powerful, never permits capitalism. Uh, the talk about free market capitalism is propaganda. We will take what the last 40 years, which according to rhetoric are the triumph of free market capitalism, Thatcher, Reagan. In fact, it's what economists have called a bailout economy. Uh, resort to market forces has led to catastrophe after catastrophe. The state has to step in to rescue the perpetrators. Uh, I can go through the details, but it's overwhelming. When economics becomes the de facto epicenter of our ideologies, do you see that as somehow co-committant to our separation from the ecological disaster that you're describing? When, you, when our ideologies, when our cultures, when our society is built around ecology, is built, excuse me, around economics, do you see that as being part of the problem that has disconnected us from nature? How do you suppose that people have become so disconnected from nature, both inner and outer? And, and, and also, Professor, when you describe um, censorship to the degree that you just have, that you're saying we're living within a kind of uh, almost unprecedented level of tyranny, certainly within the post-industrial age, how, when you have centralised power... Uh, to the degree that you do, when you have censorship to the degree that you do, when you have anti-protest laws being continually introduced and you have this 700-second ticking clock, how can we possibly intervene? Um, and also, might I ask, when censorship is as extreme as you are describing, when the dissenting voices appear to be coming from the right, when Donald Trump is the only person advocating for de-escalation in the Ukraine-Russia conflict, where do young people, or just people broadly, start to direct their optimism? Around which principles do we start to organise? Particularly when even, um, even when you, uh, a revered thinker and philosopher and uh, icon such as yourself, say that we should restrict ourselves to reform, where, do, where does the spirit come from? Because sometimes the fear somehow isn't enough because the, the fear somehow leads to a kind of despair and a kind of nihilism. And from somewhere, I feel that we have to engage something that, has, it seems to me, has long been lost, certainly since the 60s, particularly since the 80s. From where are we to find this kind of libido, this kind of love, this kind of new eros for our planet and each other in this technocratic wasteland? Where, Professor? Where, where? I'm imagining all of this being written down in the corner of your screen. I see plenty of it. I mean, I was very active in the 60s, in the aftermath. Fact of the matter is, there's more young people engaged in serious political activism today than there were in the 60s. 
There was a small period, the late 60s, 68, 71, short period in which there was plenty of activism. There wasn't much before. It settled down afterwards, uh, but uh, moved in different directions. Instead of Woodstock, uh, what you had is deep, uh, extensive uh, engagement in problems of the day. Take the feminist movement, mostly developed in the 70s, not in the 60s. There were seeds set in the 60s, but then the actual developments went on. Environmental movement barely existed in the 60s. Earth Day was a breakthrough. Then it took off with direct activism. Uh, opposition to aggression grew extensively in the 70s and the 80s. In fact, our doctrinal system, of course, suppresses activist achievements, doesn't want people to know about them. But the 1980s were an extreme breakthrough in history in, anti, uh, in opposition to aggression. The US was fighting, Reagan was fighting brutal terrorist wars in Central America. For the first time in history, people in the aggressor society, us, went to live with the victims, didn't just protest. Thousands of people from all over, all sectors, young people, evangelical churches, all sorts, went to live with the victims to try to help them, to protect them, even to offer whatever protection a white face gave. That never happened in history. Uh, during the Algerian war, people in France didn't go to live with uh, Algerian villagers. In the Vietnam War, nobody thought of going to live in a Vietnamese village. Uh, throughout history, that never happened. That was an extraordinary breakthrough. It's not discussed because it's not the thing that elites want people to understand. You're not supposed to be able to understand that you can be so dedicated in your opposition to your own country's violence that you go to live with the victims to help them. But if you think about it, it was an enormous breakthrough. That was the 80s. The 80s also saw the biggest demonstrations in history in opposition to nuclear war, early 80s, huge demonstrations of protest against building up the significant threat of nuclear war had a big effect. That's what led Reagan to accept Gorbachev's offer to establish the INF Treaty. 1987 treaty, which banned short-range missiles in Germany and Europe. Tremendous contribution to world peace. It lasted until 2018, when Trump dismantled it, part of his program of dismantling the entire arms control regime and accelerating the race to destruction, as he was also doing with climate. He's a monstrous character. Uh, it was just barely aborted in time. But that was a tremendous achievement. That was the 1980s. Goes on in later years, uh, up till today. 
the hope, the place to look for, for inspiration is not old folks like me who write articles. It's young people who love the Sunrise Movement who sit in, in Nancy Pelosi's office and demand that Congress do something to uh, uh, stop the race to destruction through climate. Well, what happened? Ordinarily, they would have just been thrown out by Capitol Police, but that didn't happen this time because they were joined by a young representative, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who swept the cane in on the Sanders wave, stayed with them. They had an impact that led to a pretty serious, not enough, but a moderately serious climate program in the Biden administration, which was killed by 100% Republican opposition and a couple of far-right Democrats like Joe Manchin. But the program was a good one. And it's led actually to a resolution in Congress, strong resolution, which outlines means to deal with, uh, seriously deal with the climate catastrophe. Well, that's progress. Of course, it's just a resolution given 100% Republican opposition to anything that might help the country and Manchin and a couple, and a couple of others can't get through. But that's where to look for inspiration. The activities that have made all these things happen, they've taken place. There's a lot going on. Doesn't get highlighted in headlines, just as the incredible achievement of the 1980s has been basically wiped out of history. Unless you participated in it, you don't even know about it. I see. I understand, Professor. So you're saying significant successes have been extracted from history in order to control the narrative and perhaps to dilute the uh, optimism and impact of future activism. But even when you recite these uh, great successes, which are to a degree inspiring, it seems that the ultimate goal of activism is to mitigate and hinder the advances of power rather than to break down and redirect power entirely. Do you think that that is too great a goal as we move towards globalist technocracy? And are you interested in how it appears, at least to me, that the rhetoric of the right is more aggressive when it comes to addressing matters such as freedom of speech? And do you find it interesting or... Or, or simply bizarre that, as you have previously commented, that only Trump criticised the uh, the lack of a de-escalatory component or at least ne a negotiation with Russia with regard to the current conflict. Because because you've obviously been clear with you know b both environmentally and in terms of um, military armament that you see Trump as a outlier and you just literally said as a a monster but you must be of course aware that the of the impact he had in your country as a populist and for me that indicates something significant about the inability of traditional leftist politics 
to engage with at you know almost fifty percent of the voting population and perhaps the population more broadly, and I think this has to do with something that I alluded to before: spirit, a kind of atma, a kind of heart. I feel that if the goal of activism, if the goal of uh, if the goal of if the goal of people that oppose power is simply to hinder, impede, and slow down the the agenda of the powerful, it's I feel like it's it's difficult to galvanize people around that. It seems limiting. Even in the, the example you gave of AOC joining the Sunrise movement in Pelosi's office, if it ultimately leads to little more than gestures, it it again feeds this idea that it's very difficult to enact change within these systems. So I wonder if you are still willing to advocate for, as you obviously once were, for a kind of more radical anarchist solution, or do you feel it is irresponsible to speak in those terms when there are such um, pressing crises to address? It's always been the case. I haven't changed my views on this. So let's go back to the 1960s. I mean, I was very active in protest against the Vietnam War, resistance. Actually, I was facing a little jail sentence, was aborted by the Tet Offensive. The government called off the trials. But notice that that was a narrow issue. It wasn't challenging the system. It was saying, let's stop destroying Indochina, okay? Still at that time, I was thinking, as I am now, in terms of long-term changes in the kinds of system that lead to this outcome. That's not going to happen like that. You have to get to it step by step. You have to spread the understanding that there's another, another world is possible. Take the slogan of the World Social Forum. They just had their 20th meeting a couple of weeks ago and reiterated their slogan correctly that another world is possible. We should be thinking about it all the time and taking steps towards it. There are steps being taken towards it. So for example, the, uh, the new systems project initiated by Garel Perovitz in working in the old Rust Belt to set up worker-owned uh, small industries and cooperatives uh, in the areas that have been deindustrialized by the neoliberal globalization policy, uh, policies. Let's do something constructive, not just uh, join militias and sit in bars lamenting what's happening. Let's set up worker-owned in, in cooperatives and industries which work their way into the economy and are a basis for a much broader change. These things can happen, but they require consciousness and awareness. Right now, one of the ways to deal with the environmental crisis is for the government to simply buy the fossil fuel systems, all of them by nationalized ExxonMobil, Chevron. The cost of that is a fraction 
of what the treasury spent to bail out uh, financial institutions from the crisis of COVID. Uh, my colleague and friend, Robert Pollan, very fine economist has worked all this out in, in significant detail, perfectly feasible. There are even precedents, close precedents for it. So for example, in 2008, 2009, uh, President Obama essentially nationalized the auto industry. That's a huge component of the American economy. It was collapsing. Government pretty much bought it up. Uh, well, there were choices at that time. One choice, the one that was taken, was to bail it out and hand it back to the former owners, maybe new faces, but the same class, and have them proceed to produce exactly what we don't need, namely more automobiles to create more pollution, worse traffic jams, uh, more accidents, and so on. That was the choice that was taken. There was another option. The option would have been, okay, we've bought up the auto industry, let's hand it over to the workforce, not the former owners, let them run it and let them produce what we actually need, mass public, efficient mass public transportation. We need it for the economy, we need it for better lives. Now that option wasn't taken because there was no organized, powerful, popular movement pressing for it the way there was for ending short-range missiles. That's our task, create that popular consciousness, that popular movement. While we're doing that, at the same time, we have to put Band-Aids on ongoing crises. There's no contradiction. You do them both. They're mutually supportive, in fact, and they're always with us. If that had been done with the auto industry, would have been a long step towards changing the fundamental nature of power in the society. Same if it were done for the fossil fuel industry today. Can be done. Needs popular pressure, takes popular organization. So at the one level, it's seeking radical system change, which you can do, make concrete moves towards. At the other level, it's dealing with severe existential ongoing crises, which you're compelled to do within the framework of existing institutions. No contradiction. The various efforts complement one another. I understand. So first of all, we must popularize the idea that real change is possible, that another change is possible, that we must describe and outline models where people have more democratic engagement in their own communities and their own workplaces. I wonder, Professor, when you were um, being arrested, when you were on Nixon's hit list, when you were first learning of, uh, when you were first beginning to understand anarchism, when you were formulating your great ideas and your innovative concepts around linguistics, what, from a humanitarian perspective or from a spiritual perspective, underwrites these systems for you? Why is it that we should change the world? 
Why is it we should engage in activism? Why is it that human beings are worth saving? Because I sense that you are a materialist rationalist, that you are not a religious or spiritual man or that you don't engage particularly with metaphysics would be my sort of understanding of you. From from where do we... Uh, Result from where do we find the the where do we find the engine and the fuel, and, and and what is it that provides your certainty that we are doing the right thing? Where do you find your meaning and your purpose? A kind of uh, what, what do I want to say? A mental priapism. How do you? Where do you find the fortitude for for your for your commitment? Well, that question is often raised. I think it's misformulated. The question should be the opposite. Why don't we all reflexively and automatically do these things? I mean, if you're walking down a street and you see a starving child uh, by sitting by the roadside, you'd automatically try to help him. Do we have to ask why you do it? The question you have to ask is why someone doesn't do it. That's the question. For me, in my own life, which is not that important, the question never arose. I mean, I grew up in the Depression. Uh, my earliest childhood impressions are some desperate person coming to the door, uh, trying to sell rags. So maybe you'd have something to eat, uh, riding with my mother in a streetcar past a factory where women textile workers are picketing and being beaten mercilessly by security forces. I mean, those are my, watching uh, Europe being taken over by fascism. I mean, kind of curiosity, if you want to know it, is that I'm, undoubtedly the last living person who was able to criticize the 1938 Munich agreements in print, if you call a school newspaper print at the time when it happened. That's my childhood. What, the question simply never arose. Obviously, this rotten system has to be changed. Obviously, we have to work to help suffering people overcome their misery. The question just never, the only question is why does any, everyone not do it all the time? That's the question we should be asking, not what drives you to do it. You don't need any spiritual force. You don't need any metaphysics. It's just obvious. The same with the academic work. I mean, 2,500 years ago, the Delphic Oracle, uh, issued a pronouncement, two-word pronouncement, know thyself. Well, that's the basic question we should all be asking. What kind of creatures are we? That's the source of my academic work. It's not, the, I didn't make up the question. It was made up by the Delphic Oracle. Uh, and it should automatically guide us. We should know what kind of person we are, what kind of creatures we are, where do we fit in the world, what can we do to make it a better world, 
These are just the driving questions that should uh, animate our intellectual pursuits and our direct activities. Uh, the only question that seems to me to arise is why it isn't obvious to everyone. The moral certainty that you describe and the rather beautiful rosebud moments of the encounter at the door with the rag seller or the streetcar moment or seeing the 1938 declaration in print in a school newspaper tie your story beautifully to the conditions of your childhood and what became, it seems to me, your mission and your certainty, your evangelical certainty that it is obvious and universal that we should have purpose is something that I share. But when you ask, why don't all people see it? Why don't all people share it? The answer that occurs to me most immediately is that we live lives abstracted from meaning, abstracted from nature, abstracted from an engaging mythos, something that can touch, bind and unite us. And it seems to me no accident that this nihilism emerges in the conditions of late capitalism, that when our role becomes to consume, to observe, to passively stare, it's difficult to see the world as something that you engage with in on, in an ongoing creation of meaning, that beauty is something that we participate in. I wonder if there are anthropological reasons for this, now that we live in vast atomized settlements, disconnected from one another, while we live in a culture that increasingly defibrillates tribalism, where we're continually reminded of our difference turned against one another, where the visceral issues in your country of, for example, abortion and gun control are continually uh, ignited at a time when significant as both those issues are morally, ethically, and in terms of the enormous consequences that we have seen all too recently, our collective attention could be turned to the matters of Gaia and ecology and global salvation, a kind of secular rapture. But it seems to me it is difficult for people to engage with that when we're all trapped in prisons, either of comfort or despair. So, Noam, it seems to me that the difference between stepping over a poor person in the street and the visceral reaction we have when we see poverty or suffering compared to our understanding of distant poverty and suffering is one of our nature, that we're living lives that we're not evolved to live. We're not evolved to live in centralised systems of 300 million people under one divisive flag. So the point at the beginning of our conversation, the significance of decentralization. I wonder if rather than a distant dream that has to be incrementally approached while we apply the band-aids, I wonder if it is a necessary and immediate salve to, to grant people something that is more 
coherent and congruent with our nature. We must change the world to emulate who we really are. That we must create conditions where our nature can thrive, where our natural compassion and humanity is evident and obvious throughout our lives, where we don't live in individual and collective hypocrisy, separate, separated from our nature, because it seems to me rather obvious, Gnome, if I may call you Gnome, that you are a unique and special person and that the story that your life has given us and that your work has given us is one of your, in one way or another, I would call it religious connection to your mission. And if we don't create fundamental change, and I know that you've said they're not mutually exclusive, we can create global radical change at the same time as addressing the most immediate problems. But I feel in terms of igniting the passion of people, in terms of creating a myth, we have to give people a vision this is the alternative world that is possible. Can you tell us the kind of manifesto in some, some points that we can draw people's attention to? And sometimes I feel that, you know, sometimes, you know, voting in your workplace isn't enough for people. It doesn't touch their hearts enough. Well, I'm, we, first we should recognise that we understand very little about human nature. When people talk about it's our nature to do something, they're uh, mostly expressing their own kind of wish fulfillment. It, the science tells us very little. We do know something. We can, we can observe children. Take children. Children are naturally inquisitive. They're always asking why, you know, to the point where it's irritating to parents. You give them one answer, they want to know something else. They go to school. What happens in school? Their natural inquisitiveness is subdued and broken down. They're told to pass tests. In the last 10 or 15 years, it's become ludicrous. Uh, education has become test-oriented. You're not supposed to learn anything. You're just supposed to pass a test. That's been official policy. But this goes back hundreds of years. There were debates back in the 18th century about education during the Enlightenment. There were two models proposed. One is the model of pouring water into a vessel and then letting it come out. That's teaching to test. That was ridiculed as grotesque. Uh, the model that was offered was inspiring natural creativity and inquisitiveness, setting up conditions in which the child will explore on his own, on her own, with cooperatively with others. Uh, in the modern period, that became the progressive education movement. Uh, I should say, personally, I was lucky to go to a progressive, the Deweyite school didn't have grades, no, no competition. I didn't even know I was a good student till I got to an academic high school. I knew I'd skipped a grade, but nobody paid attention to that. So you're not the smallest kid in the class. That's a perfectly possible educational environment. Uh, we're instead pursuing the opposite, the model of pouring water into a vessel, letting it come out. We don't have to do that. 
The same is true in the moral dimension. My, one of the great uh, student, uh, scientists who investigated child language acquisition, Lila Gleitman, died recently, a close friend and colleague for 60 years. Uh, she pointed out that one of the first phrases that children learn is, that's not fair. Pretty remarkable, that's a complex notion, but children know it automatically. In fact, fairness, if you look at the political philosophy, uh, the major modern work by Jack Rawls is justice is fairness, based on fairness, something that children know by the time they're two years old, and they can understand fairness and what's not fair. Okay, that's our natural human nature gets beaten out of us. I'm optimistic about human nature. I think if we dis dismantle the means that are used to drive these natural instincts out of us, we can have a much more flourishing, exciting, positive environment, both intellectually, morally, and politically. It's not a new insight. My favorite philosopher, David Hume, 350 years ago, wrote the first modern work in what's now called political science, his first principles of government. He opens it by describing a paradox. He said he's amazed, he astonished to see the easiness with which the many subordinate themselves to the few. He says, power is in the hands of the governed. Why do they submit themselves to being controlled and governed by the few? He says, the only answer is consent, what's now called manufacture of consent. The powerful force are able somehow to impose consent. So people forget that they have the power to run and control things, and it's beaten out of them by uh, culture and institutions that are run by the few and the powerful. He says that's true of every society. It's true today. Let's take a look at our own lives. You take a kid who's in college today, or uh, in high school today, his highest goal in life is to get a job. What's getting a job? Getting a job means subordinating yourself to a master for most of your waking life, a master who controls everything you do, who says you can go to the bathroom for five minutes at 3 p.m. You can talk to your friend for two minutes at, uh, on a break at noon, you know. That's subordinating yourself totally to a master. Let's go back to the late 19th century when the industrial system was just developing. Subordinating yourself to a master was considered the most severe attack on human rights and human dignity, totally intolerable. The first major labor movement 
the Knights of Labor, huge labor movement. Its slogan was, those who work in the mills should own them and manage them. We don't need bosses. We don't want that absentee guy who shows up and telling us what to do. In fact, that was such a popular idea that it was a slogan of the Republican Party under Abraham Lincoln that uh, working for a wage is fundamentally no different from slavery, except that it's temporary. That was the general consciousness in the late 19th century. It's taken a lot of work to beat that of people's heads and to make them accept that being subordinate to a master is your highest goal in life. I don't think it's far below the surface. That's why I think what things like opening the doors, even to a small worker-owned factory or something larger, like taking over the whole auto industry, I think that can lead to breakthroughs. Power, I think, is very fragile. Expose it, it disappears. It have to keep, that's what we have huge propaganda systems for. In what you were saying, you mentioned our addiction to consumerism. Why are we addicted to consumerism? Well, one reason is that the world's greatest propaganda agency, overwhelming everything else, is the PR system, public relations system, advertising. We are deluged with advertising to try to get us to consume. I've seen this dramatically over my own lifetime. So like the first time I went to a baseball game, 1937, you were interested in the players. Uh, there were, I, I never went again for about 40 years until my grandson wanted me to take him to a baseball game. All over the stadium are advertisements. All over the walls are advertising. Between the breaks, there's advertising. The players have advertising on their uniforms. You're overwhelmed in your life with advertising design to turn you into a fanatic consumer. Uh, well, it takes a little effort to resist this when it's just overwhelming you all the time. That's a form of consent. You mentioned guns. Where does the gun culture come from? I mean, it is a history. It is a violent country. In the 19th century, uh, the cavalry was wiping out the indigenous population. You needed uh, militias to stop, control slaves and so on. By the 20th century, this was gone. No need. Uh, it was an agricultural country, so a farmer would have an old musket to drive uh, jackals away or something. The gun industry was in trouble in the late 19th century. There's good scholarship on this, incidentally, if you want to look into it. Pamela Hogg. Uh, the gun industry was, the Civil War was over. They didn't have that market. Europe was in a period of peace. They lost the European market. They initiated the first great advertising program, an enormous program which concocted a totally mythical image of a Wild West which never existed. You know, sheriffs fast on the draw, you know, brave cowboys riding off to do this and that. I mean, when I was a kid, I believed that, you know, 
Lone Ranger, Wyatt Earp, all total mythology concocted by the public relations industry. And the subtext is your 12 year old son needs a Winchester rifle, otherwise he won't be a man. And your daughter needs a little pink pistol so she'll be able to defend herself. That revived the gun industry and it created a gun culture, which is total mythology created by the public relations industry. This was then buttressed by the reactionary Roberts Court, 2008, passed a, it decided it reversed a century of precedent and determined that the Second Amendment allows individual purchase of guns. That's legal chicanery. If you look at Scalia's decisions worth reading, it doesn't mention any of the reasons, any of the reasons why the framers set up the Second Amendment. They had a reason. One reason was there was no standing army and the British were a threat, so you needed militias. That's why the Second Amendment starts by saying in order to maintain a well-organized militia. The other is you had to kill Indians. So you needed guns until the cavalry took over and did it in a more efficient way. You had slaves, you had to make sure they were under control. That's why we have the Second Amendment. None of this is mentioned in the Scalia decision. It's pure fraud, but it created the Second Amendment as holy writ. You ask people what's in the Constitution, the first thing they'll say is the Second Amendment. When Trump or some other fake populist wants to appeal to the public, he says, we have to defend our Second Amendment rights. So almost all total fraud, a mixture of a huge advertising achievement, the first major one, which created this mythical Wild West, and then a judicial treachery. Those are means to create consent, just like teaching to test, uh, uh, just like consumerist advertising, you know, ads all over the walls of the baseball statement, stadium. They didn't have that in the 1930s. Uh, it was just a baseball game, you know. Uh, you didn't have to, if you're watching television, say the Super Bowl, there have to be breaks so you can have advertising. Why? That's in order to impose consumerism, to turn you into consumerist maniac, harming your own life, harming the environment, but making profits and keeping you under control. Every aspect of our life you find is, well, first task for an activist is, let's remove the veil. Let's expose what's happening all across the board then we can turn to the other questions. And I think we then find that people's natural instincts, that's not fair, or I want to inquire and get the answers. I think those burst out. Wow, that was beautiful. It was also extremely generous of you to uh, extrapolate and describe manufacture of consent. I feel like we've had the Rolling Stones on and they've done satisfaction for us. 
Thank you for for doing a, a one hit for doing a very uh, identifiable and recognisable hit from your great canon. It, what, some of the things that struck me, Noam, in your last answer were your point about the, there was a time where Lincoln could use an apparently collectivist and anarchic slogan and now the party of the Republicans, whilst it has become increasingly individualistic and libertarian, certainly it's clearly operating at the behest of corporate power. More recently, a journalist like Chris Hedges, even in my lifetime, could work for the New York Times and now is not allowed to be on Russia today, cannot be on the Internet. So clearly something is moving at great pace. It was interesting to hear you speak about nature whilst you said the science on human nature in inverted commas is, um, you know, dubious, uh, unclear. You talked about our apparently inherent sense of justice and our apparently inherent sense of inquiry. You talk, too, of the removal of the veil, the idea of an awakening, that we need to have an individual and collective awakening in order to become active participants in our culture. I loved your description of how uh, how the walls of our culture have become lacquered in logos and slogans, how we have been subdued by consumerism, how all of our institutions are are facing one direction. I before uh, before we um finish our conversation, I wonder if I might um ask you when you had a uh, a, a somewhat famous conversation with the French postmodernist Michel Foucault. The two of you discussed human nature. I wonder how uh, how you recall that encounter and what you think of the uh, what value you take from the um, from the you know the collective works uh, and the, the the ongoing influence, particularly in academia of uh, Michel Foucault. So just a kind of a personal recollection and what you think of his continuing relevance and his significance when critiquing culture and when critiquing power. Well, actually, uh, a televised recorded interview was pretty formalized, but the afternoon, it was in the evening, it was in Holland, in the afternoon, we spent the afternoon together just walking through the Dutch countryside at the country home of the moderator of the debate for two, two reasons. One reason is just we want to have a chance to talk informally. The other was more technical. Uh, I don't know French. He doesn't know English. We wanted to see if we could get by speaking me speaking English, him speaking French, and our understanding each other without a translator. If you know, if you looked at the recording, there was no translator, even though my French is rudimentary and his English is rudimentary. But we found just spending a couple hours talking to each other that we could we could manage without a translator. And then we just had an informal conversation in which a lot of these questions came up. In the recorded interview, it's, it's all kind of formalized. Not totally. There were things that you didn't see. I'll mention them. 
the moderator, Fons Elders, the guy who at the, he, he was a Dutch anarchist. There was a strong Dutch anarchist movement at the time, which was doing quite funny things. Like they'd go to a horse show of distinguished uh, gentlemen and ladies and feed the horses with uh, uh, drugs. So they'd start prancing around, they'd going crazy and break up the whole horse show. They were leaving white bicycles all over Amsterdam, which were free. People could pick them up and go wherever they wanted. They were doing lots of things. Well, one of the things that Fons Elders did uh, in this, uh, when we were on the way to the studio, he stopped at his house and he went upstairs and came down and he came down holding a red wig. Uh, Foucault is bald. The entire time we were sitting there, he had the wig on his lap below the level where the, the recording was, and he was poking Foucault and saying, put it on, put it on. <laughs> <laughs> that was the subtext. <laughs> but the discussion itself was basically formal. But we had an interesting discussion before. See, there are things that anarchists can do. <laughs> <laughs> because I suppose the reason I mentioned Foucault is because he's regarded as a transgressive uh, intellectual. And I suppose uh, it, I'm interested now, having heard that anecdote in this situationism that was prevalent, the idea that we can disrupt reality, that activism can have humour in it, must have play in it, that the evocation of the human spirit is vital, that if we are to invite people to consider new models and new realities, we must engage with them at the level of the, the child, this nascent sense of play and fun and justice and mirth. Do you feel, um, if I may ask, forgive me for um, detaining you, but, but may I ask, in your country at the moment, part of the censorship that we are experiencing, it seems, is couched within the terms and language of what has become commonly known as the culture war. The culture war, it seems, it seems to me, is like you know, split between um, forces of conservatism and progressivism. Is one of the things that decentralized power offers us, in your opinion, the opportunity for people to live harmonious yet discreet lives where people that are interested in orthodoxies, perhaps of faith and orthodoxies of social progressivism can live in community and confederacy with the shared aim of justice and respect without seeking to dominate and control each other's ideologies. Do you think that decentralization of power, collective power, offers solutions to this culture war that it seems to me is preventing a mass movement, a real populist movement emerging? Well, I think the answer to that question is very simple. Uh, either we will learn to live together in harmony with mutual aid, mutual support, uh, mutual understanding, or else we're finished. That's it. <laughs> Professor, 
I, I can't tell you how grateful I am to have the treasure of your company and of your time. I'm grateful to you for uh, giving us your valuable time when you have to read my somewhat verbose questions in the corner of the screen. Thank you for sharing your personal anecdotes and uh, giving us, uh, thank you for the decades of wisdom that you have shared. I'm enormously grateful to you, sir. Thank you, it's my pleasure. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you, Professor. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with Noam Chomsky. If you enjoyed this chat, listen to uh, you might want to listen to Chris Hedges or Matt Tybee, similar conversations. And remember, you can listen to Above the Noise on Luminary whenever you want. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary.